discretionary efforts is stuff you'll do because you want to, not because you're told to. And I believe that most organizations have a huge reservoir of discretionary effort that's largely untapped. We essentially don't know how to access that specific power base. It's very rare that people will resist change if they believe the change has to happen. But if they don't understand what the change is or it's imposed upon them, and BCG has research behind this that says if there's not a clear sense of purpose where people can't connect to that purpose in a meaningful way or be aligned around it, they're far less engaged. Good morning, good afternoon and good evening everybody. This is Ben Morton and a very warm welcome to episode 77 of the podcast and the very first episode of season five. In this episode, we are joined by Professor Tony O'Driscoll to talk about his new book, Everyday Superhero, how you can inspire everyone to create real change at work. As more and more of you tune in to listen to the show, I'm finding that I'm being approached more and more by publicists asking me to interview their client about their latest book. Now, I say no to around about 75% of these requests, I think, as I'm committed to only interviewing people on the podcast who I truly believe are relevant and are going to help you grow as a leader. Professor O'Driscoll is one of these people. His knowledge about leadership and change is off the charts good, and his new book is absolutely fantastic. It's so good, in fact, that I've got hold of two extra copies to give away to you, my dear listeners, for free. For a chance to win one, all you have to do is listen to this episode in full, and you will find a hidden secret word somewhere in the episode. Don't worry, it will be very obvious. It's not a cryptic clue. And as soon as you hear that secret word, just email it across to me to chat at ben-morton.com. That email will be in the show notes. Send it across to me by the 28th of April 2022 and we'll add your name into the prize draw to grab one of those two copies of Professor O'Driscoll's book. Getting back to the book... Everyday Superhero is a very different type of business book. It's short, highly engaging, and it tells the story of how leaders can unlock every employee's superpower to create lasting change. I read it in just over an hour, one lunchtime, and scribbled copious notes all over my copy. But don't worry, I'm not giving away my copy covered in notes. I've got two nice, clean, crisp versions to share with you. So without any further delay, please enjoy my fascinating conversation with the very erudite Professor Tony O'Driscoll. Tony, a very warm welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you with us today. Um, First of all, how are you? I'm doing well, Ben, and you. I hear the weather's pretty good over there for you today. It's nice here in North Carolina, always is, so weather always helps. It's terribly British to always talk about the weather, but this week the sun has been shining, so moods have, moods have been lifted here where, where I live, which is good. That's good. We need a bit of that today, these days in general. We certainly do. Talking of which, um, can you start by telling us about the, the new book, Everyday Superhero, which was just chatting off air. Bizarrely, I have seen the uh, the physical copy. I've got one in my hand, but you haven't yet got the physical copy. So yeah, can you tell us about the, the concept of the book and when it comes out and kind of what, what prompted you to write it? 
So I'm, I'm an academic professor in business at Duke University here in North Carolina. But prior to that, I had a, I had a career in strategy, 20 years, I would say. And I was approached by PMI, Project Management Institute, to say, look, we have a bit of a problem here that many strategies that get formulated aren't successfully executed up to 70%, depending on who, you know, whose research you look at. But, but the numbers are pretty poor, to use an American baseball analogy, which is very dangerous for me because I don't understand it. But if you're a batter <laughs> and you hit it three times out of 10, that's good. Well, it's kind of like that. If you, you craft a really good strategy, but why, why isn't it getting executed seven times out of 10? And one glib way to say it is, well, because execution means kill. So execution can mean do or execution can mean kill. Unfortunately, seven times out of 10, it gets killed. So the question is, why do even good strategies fail? And so that was a quest. I went on an 18-month kind of research quest to try to understand what the literature was saying about this. Why does the conception of a strategy not become realized? That was the question. Right. It turned out from the research that, that there's something that uh, Reynolds calls the tyranny of the tangible. Whenever we want to implement change, we tend to think if we just change the structure or we change the process or we implement a piece of software to augment a process or implement a process, we will have changed. And that's the tyranny of the tangible. Those are the things we can see, we can measure, we can move, we can monitor. And what, what we fail to do is include the people in the change. And we all know this from change management perspective. So, so I try to take that insight along with the ideas of design thinking and empathy and really kind of understanding the emotional levers of change and then say, how might we be more people-centered in how we lead and how we transform business? So that was probably a long, wonky answer, but that's that's the genesis of it. No, that's great. Obviously, because people are just listening to the audio and they can't see a copy of the, the physical book that I just held up, but it's a very different business book in terms of content and how it actually looks. So can you uh, paint a picture for listeners of kind of what the book looks like and what they can expect? Yeah, there's no substitute for dumb luck, Ben, I suppose is the way we'd say that. I, I was presenting a, a much more kind of academic treatment of this framework that I developed, people-centered framework and the physical shifts that need to happen and how it, how it relates to most of the current research. And I was approached uh, by Random House, uh, Martino Sullivan, the editor, and said, I think you have a book here. A, a more, you know, business book rather than an academic book. And I said, oh, really? Okay, that sounds good. And then when we started writing it up, I wrote it up in the traditional sense, more, more like an academic book with one or two figures and so on and so forth. And she said, you know, your whole premise is that this is about people-centered transformation. I think it should be told in the form of a story. And I said, a what? <laughs> am, I, am I Steven Spielberg now or something? But fortunately, I had a very good friend who I've worked with for years with my presentations, who is an illustrator and also a storyteller. And so I reached out to Gary and said, hey, what do you think about us collaborating on a book where we try to take the research I've done and, and, and literally bring it to life on the pages? And, and so originally it started out, maybe we'd have one figure per performance and a transformation element. But then as soon as the as Martina and the team at Random House kind of saw Gary's unique abilities, they said, no, 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 this is going to become a comic book, essentially, if you want to call it that, uh, a graphic novel. And so, so yeah, it's new and it's different. So we have no idea how it'll be received. But the, the concept was, let's tell the story in the front 
but then inside the story are con- all the elements of the framework that you can then kind of refer to at the back. Yeah, like again, we were saying off air, really fortunate to have been sent one of the, the review copies and I kind of picked it up kind of one one lunchtime and ended up taking a slightly longer lunch break than, than normal, but kind of read the whole of the cartoon story element in, in one lunchtime. And I was just constantly sort of, scribbling all over it and highlighting bits and bits that resonated and, and made sense so it, it, it's it's very cool I, I must say hmm. well I'm glad to hear that that's uh that makes me smile because we we, we don't know you know this is this is true innovation we're, we're we're doing something unique and different and certainly folks we've reached out are like wow it's different you know and and, and different can be good and different can be bad but that's why and one of the principles here is you, you've got to kind of test and learn rather than think and plan. And so we're testing and learning. So I'm not entirely sure where, where to go first, because a whole load of questions I wanted to ask you. But actually, based on something that you've already shared, Tony, there's a section or a couple of sentences right towards the back of the book that I had planned on maybe asking you towards the end of our conversation, but you've touched on it. So let me ask it now. It says here, organizations cannot change unless their people change. Research shows that people do not resist change, they resist being changed. Can you just elaborate on, on that a little bit, bit more for us? Because on the one hand, surface level, you go, oh, yeah, that, that makes sense. But it seems to me there's a, there's a lot more, more going on there. So Yeah, there's a huge amount going on there. And, and you know, most of this in being an, an academic, you're kind of trained to understand, to, to know the literature and then build upon the literature. It's almost like the law. So that that's uh, Peter Senge. That's Learning Organization 101, 1990. That, uh, you know, most of us, if we're in change management, we're familiar with John Cotter's work or Roosevelt Moscanter or Peter, is that if you involve people in the change, they feel more committed to the change. Right. Right. If you don't, then either they don't understand it so they can't execute it or they they will undermine it or sabotage it to a certain extent because it's going against the status quo. So, number one, they need to know why. Right. They need to know not what we're doing, but why we're doing it. That's back to kind of a sense of purpose and alignment. And, And number two, they they need to find meaning in the why. To unlock what we call discretionary effort. Yeah. Discretionary effort is the stuff you'll do because you want to, not because you're told to. And I believe that most organizations have a huge reservoir of discretionary effort that's largely untapped because we, we essentially don't know how to access that specific power base. And that's because we don't involve people. It's very rare that people will, will resist change if they believe the change has to happen. But if they don't understand what the change is or it's imposed upon them, and BCG has research behind this that says if there's not a clear sense of purpose where people can't connect to that purpose in a meaningful way or be aligned around it, they're far less engaged. It just stands to reason. I think that Peter Senge's kind of distillation of that is they don't resist change. They resist being changed. No involvement, no commitment. Maybe it might be another way to say it. Got you. So it really does speak to helping them understand kind of why the the purpose and instead of creating a situation where where they feel they are being done to, it really is about engagement and getting them involved in in the process. Is that right? Yes. And and I think all of these elements, they're they're actually not presented as a list. Certainly in the front end of the book, there's the kind of list of how you might lead in a traditional hierarchical sense in the command and control model. Uh, but when you, when you move to the people-centered transformation elements, they're, they're kind of arrayed more like a spider's web. Now, at the middle of the spider's web, in the, in the core of the spider's web, is this notion of communicating a compelling change narrative. 
So in, in other words, everything starts with a story. We process our world through stories. This is one thing I actually learned in working in the book and working with Gary is that um, it's all about narrative. We operate on narrative. The stories that we've learned and tell ourselves over time are kind of what allow us to make sense of the world. And so if you don't start with a compelling narrative that kind of moves through the brain and down into the heart and people find meaning in it, you're not going to move forward. And, and there I have an example where I talk about Martin Luther King. He didn't show up that day and say, I have a plan. If he had, we wouldn't be talking about him. He had a dream, but that was a dream that others believed in. And therefore, you know, you, you got that discretionary effort turned on because he clearly articulated a compelling change narrative. He articulated a possible future that could be realized. And in so doing, in such a compelling way, he, you know, created a movement, if you will. That doesn't happen with kind of the 10 tactical things we must do and what software we're going to do to do it more efficiently and the measures we're going to put in place to say, are we meeting success? That must come. Don't, don't get me wrong. But it begins with a compelling change narrative to unlock discretionary effort. So then people feel completely involved, right, in the change effort themselves. There's a question that occurs to me based on what you've just said, Tony, which I guess links as well with your stat you shared at the start around 7 out of 10 or 70% of, of, of strategies fail. I think in terms of this piece around for a change to be successful or a strategy to be successful, A, people need to understand why, people need to feel committed to it. I have this sense that if we got 100 senior executives in a room and said to them, kind of go away, have a conversation in some small groups and come back with your list of 10 things that's going to lead to a successful change program in, in whatever kind of realm. I suspect most of them would come back with clear, clear vision, engage people in the, in, in the process. So that being the case, like what, what do you think goes wrong? Why is there this disconnect between sort of often knowing what we should do to do this really well and successfully uh, and the reality on, on the ground? That's a tricky one. And I know you have a military background and I know, you know, today we're dealing with, unfortunately, with, with a particular situation like that in the Ukraine. I think in a prior world where things were less complex, less connected, more predictable, a hierarchy works very well because we have a known set of outcomes that we're planning towards and we can kind of decompose the problem into its pieces and then we can kind of allocate resource against those things and then we can measure when success happens and then we can know what's add-on pass-along work and we can stage and sequence the work and we can kind of, you know, I mean, it's it's, it's PMI 101. Again, yeah. the Project Management Institute came to me because a lot of uh, the PMBOK, Project Management Body of Knowledge, and all of the work that is there in that body of knowledge to kind of get stuff done right, assumes a world that's known and predictable. And, and, and the further we're getting into the future where we're more connected and more digital and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, the world's less predictable. And so there's, there's arguably a whole broader array of options. And, and the reality is no single human being can fully understand the, the landscape of possibility, right? None of us is as smart as all of us. So, so we need a more collaborative approach to pivoting and moving forward and dealing with uncertainty. And, and so that's where a more co-creative, collaborative leadership model emerges. And, and this then becomes a little challenging because there's a whole other piece of work that I've done, not just me, there's other others like Barbara Kellerman and all the way back to Mary Parker Follett in 1914 that says, what is leadership anyway? And so Barbara talks about leadership attribution error. So, you know, in times of turmoil, we've had Churchill who showed up and kind of showed us the way and shone a light towards the future. And we always tend to attribute it to a person, right? 
but I've been to to where Churchill was essentially commanding, and there was there was a whole bunch yeah, of people near yeah, the war yeah. rooms, you know, right there in London. There was a whole network of people doing things. You know, you talk about Thomas Edison inventing the light bulb. No, Menlo Park was a whole network of people, and in fact, it wasn't the light bulb. It was the electrical network system to power the light bulbs that essentially made the light bulb work. So, so I, the, the attribution error is we, we, we tend to think that leadership's a noun, and it's actually a verb. Yeah. And if you think about organizations in general, we have CRM systems, and we have ERP systems, and we have everything's a system. But we tend to think about leadership as a person, when in fact, mm. leadership truly is a system. It's a system of actions and interactions and feedback that then kind of reifies in the form of a culture. And so I think we over-rotate on person as leader and person at top as leader. Now, at the same time, it's that very leader who has position in the hierarchy who, in showing their vulnerability, who says, I don't know the answer, but I know that together we can figure it out. Are you with me? Which is essentially what May does when, when, when in the narrative, when it shifts we have the the character of Chief Muck, who's essentially portraying the the kind of all knowing, all seeing, all powerful, and demanding performance when performance is impossible in the current situation. So what's required is innovation. What firm today doesn't feel that you can't shrink your way to greatness? You can't you can't just cost cut your way to kind of continuing because that's all been automated. You know, there's digital systems that basically create parity on that. You must do the work of being efficient, right, to reduce your cost structure. But that's largely been digitized. So then the source of differentiation used to be in, in business in scale and efficiency. Then it moved to being able to change and pivot, which is where, you know, right about the point where we are now in this book. And now the, the new argument from folks like Martin Reeves is it's imagination. As the world becomes more digital, it's really the power of ideas that's going to kind of accrue the most value. Both the change aspect and the imagination aspect, there's no AI that can deal with that because it requires looking forward. It requires being human and, and anticipating. I think in times of fear, when we're given a situation that we're not familiar with, this is just a biological thing, our blood actually rushes down to our legs. That's, that's a biological thing. It's like, oh my gosh, a lion is coming after me. I need to run, right? Your, rep your, your reproductive system cuts out. You don't need any blood going there right now because you're not going to be doing that. You just need to run. <laughs> but what that means actually biologically is the blood rushes from your prefrontal cortex, which is where you're supposed to think, and you go limbic. And limbic means you actually execute a whole bunch of things based on what you know. So biologically, we're predisposed to going back to the status quo, which is yanking on the hierarchical lever. Keep calm, carry on. I know what's going on here. This is what we must do. And and so I think it's it's really a biological challenge that, you know, over the millennia, our DNA has kind of seen to it that in times of strife, we talk about flight, fear, freeze, right? So here we kind of either freeze, which is we're doing that a lot now, or we decide we're going to fight, or or we kind of retrench into the status quo and do what we've always done. So the MERB, the, the Muck Immutable Rule Book, is kind of the set of rules that you see in the behavior of leadership when faced with these kind of situations. Demand fail-proof plans, measure outcomes, impose hierarchy, dictate direction, require conformity, maintain control, monitor activity, demand performance, project power. These are all common behaviors that we do see, and particularly if somebody's pushed into a corner. Yeah, that, make, that makes sense. There's something you said I, I'm desperate to ask you before I um, ask you some more questions based um, more directly on the book. But back to this leadership system, Fred, we were following. Is there a sort of chicken and egg situation going 
on here in so much as like what comes first like having the leadership system or does it require a that a forward thinking feels like the wrong wrong label to use here but does it require a leader who sees the value in the system or a leader who is able to create that system and, and allow it to work like the example as you was talking that springs to mind and I'm not a football or soccer fan for people listening outside of the UK but the current England manager Gareth Southgate is being heralded as the the best manager England football team has ever had transforming the team but actually reading a few articles about what he's done he has very deliberately been trying to disrupt the status quo and the decades and decades of thinking around English football by bringing in really diverse people. So he does not operate in this echo chamber that many leaders, let's face it, end up operating in where we project something out and just hear everybody nodding the, and sharing the same thing back. So he's brought in some leading business entrepreneurs from the UK, psychologists, people from the military, all these different angles. Um, I think Clive Woodward, the ex-England rugby coach from a different sport, What's your your take on that? Like, what what comes first, the system, or does it still require a great forward thinking leader who's able to set up the system? The way that I get out of this riddle is that the MERB, the Muck Immutable Rule Book, is the status quo. Right. And in the status quo, there is a leader at the top of the heap. Yeah. So that's how the situation is. And uh, if you're familiar with complexity theory, that's the strange attractor. The default is we'll fall into the MERB, we'll fall into Mm -hmm. maintaining control, position power, all of those things. And in order then to, if you're familiar with chaos theory, to kind of get out of that strange attractor and jump to another one, it really does come with leadership. I believe it's the ship, not the leader. To me, there's only one definition that works anywhere around the world in order to determine whether or not you have a leader. It's very simple. Are you being followed? If you're being followed by one person, you are, by definition, a leader. So then the very nature of leadership is interesting because in some situations you'll lead and in some situations you'll follow. I'll give you an example. I had, I had the great fortune of working with um, some of the SWAT teams in the military in the United States. Now, they're the kind of teams, as you'd know from your background, who kind of parachute in and have no support. And, and so the hierarchy matters to a certain extent. But at some point in time when you're on the ground, it's the person who understands the language and the culture who leads, irrespective of the hierarchy, because there's just the right diversity, the smallest team possible that has the right diversity in that system to be able to navigate an uncertain territory. And and so the question then becomes, how do you know when to pass the ball of leadership given the particular context you're in? And then sometimes you lead and sometimes you follow, right? So that, that's the kind of nature of a leadership system is having the right kind of cues within that operating system to understand who leads when. And, and that then goes back to power bases. If you know French and Raven's power power structures, you know, there's kind of position power. That's what we tend to always see and recognize. We want to see the org chart. There's reward power. There's coercive power. There's knowledge power. And there's referent power. In a hierarchical system, it's kind of position and coercive, right? Uh, reward also if it's extrinsic money. But then on the other side, it's it's who you know and what you know. And then reward can also be, you know, true recognition, authentic appreciation, those kind of things. And so when you shift, everything changes. It, but in order for that shift to happen, I do believe that you need a leader who then exercises humility and shows vulnerability. Yes. Instead of projecting power, which would be a MERB rule, you essentially 
embrace situational humility. We're in a situation I've never been in before. I know on this team, we have what it takes to make it. Together, we can do it. Our aspiration is true and pure. Are you with me? Rather than, there's the hill, let's take the hill. Now, I want to be super clear here. What I'm suggesting is that the status quo is the MERB, the Muck Immutable Rulebook. And that's what will, that's kind of the center of gravity. So the leadership system needs to try and stretch away from the MERB to creating a compelling narrative or embracing situational humility or catalyzing a leadership system or those other elements. So it's almost like you're trying to, you're trying to move away from the status quo. And if you can, if you can push that on all fronts, then ultimately you'll end up with a culture that has aspiration, alignment, autonomy, and accountability. And those four give you agility. It, they give you the opportunity for the firm to kind of, you know, almost act more like an organism than a mechanism and be more responsive yeah. to the the uncertainties and vagaries of the world we live in today. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. And that's interesting as well, right? Because so often the analogy is used in in business, like let's get the team operating like a, like a well-oiled machine. And this story I'm about to tell isn't mine. I think I spotted a video online somewhere recently of former U.S. SEAL commander Jocko Willink, and he was he was sharing. He said, "But you, you don't want a machine because a machine can do one thing. It can't flex. It can't change. It's not not agile." Now he didn't use the go on to use the organism analogy that you just did, but it, it's so right actually, isn't it? Like machines don't work in the in the this modern complex fast-paced world that we we've been talking about right whereas organisms can flex and change yeah in a way if you think about the the ecosystem like uh, this is a big word these days in business is you know the ecosystem apple has an ecosystem and huawei has an ecosystem and you know there there are these vast platforms you know if you ask yourself you know, it's interesting to me as a business person more of the academic in me is coming out here than than the comic book, but hopefully, you know, if nothing else, hopefully it shows that I'm I'm standing on the shoulders of giants who've done research. But if if you kind of think about the business world we operate in today, uh, it operates at the speed of light. Everything is connected, right? The money moves around the world at the speed of light. You know, uh, information, instructions, companies work 24-7. We saw this when COVID hit, just the brittlety of the supply chains because we've, we've yeah. really, really managed them for efficiency. And when you manage something for efficiency, they're brittle. They're not. They're not designed for resilience. They're designed for efficiency. And, and I think a lot of us felt that wherever, whatever part of the world we were in. Um, and, and so now we're kind of trying to rethink it. But but that's because the world is really now a complex adaptive system. It operates like a complex adaptive, not, not not like a machine. And so in a way, if you think about the business ecosystem, this is where everybody's trying to become an ecosystem or a platform player and so on and so forth, like the Amazons of, of this world. Well, how is it possible? that the kind of hierarchical machinery that, that operated in a predictable business world that wasn't connected and complex could possibly work. It, it's like trying to play tennis with a golf club. Like the, the fit doesn't work if you want to use a Michael Porter context. You, you know what I mean? It's, it's not suited to the reality that we're dealing with. Yeah, so, so it's almost like the whole organizational operating system needs an upgrade. And at the core of that, I believe, is the notion of the first thing we need to instantiate is a leadership system. Now, the irony is, back to your earlier question, it takes a leader who's going to exercise situational humility and show vulnerability and ask people to share in an aspiration and then have faith that it will come rather than impose command and control. 
That's a huge ask of somebody who, for their whole life, has all the evidence to show what it takes to, quote unquote, climb the ladder, get up, whatever that metaphor you want to use is, and let go of all that. I had a great mentor at IBM when I worked at IBM who said, you know, the biggest thing I've learned about leadership is you need to let go to grow. In fact, she wrote a book about that, Nancy Divinity. That's really easy to say, but you're trying to let go of so many lessons that you have learned that you believe to be true and self-evident because of your own experience. The fallacy in that today is that your own experience happened in a world that no longer exists. So, so you might be relying on that narrative. You might be relying on that. And you might have all the evidence to suggest that it worked for you. The question is, can you rip and replace that into the world we live in today? I think that's one of the very unique opportunities that leadership in the military presents. And I'm so fortunate to have had that as my grounding in, in so much as I took command, in inverted commas, the word command of 30 soldiers thereabouts, aged 21 and uh, 22, just coming out, out of Sandhurst. And actually, I knew very, very little. I had 11 months of leadership focused training, but there wasn't much to, to let, let go of. I almost started knowing I had a very like good, but probably thin experience base. And I was going to learn more leadership skills very quickly from working alongside, effectively leading people who are way more experienced and more more senior to me. So I'd never quite made that connection as as clearly as I have just now until you you, you shared that. But that, I was really fortunate that there wasn't loads that I was hanging on to. So I was almost like a, a sponge sucking up new skills. Right. There's a bigger narrative here. So again, it goes back to the power of narrative. One of the things that I really learned a lot in actually doing the book, sometimes you have to act to think differently. A lot of times, especially in the world of the academy, we're like, if I can get you to think differently, Ben, I'm going to give you five or six or seven arguments, and then they will be rational, and they will be unequivocal, and therefore I will change your mind. You know, uh, right. and, and so it's like, change your mind before you change your behavior. Uh, some of the new research Hermione Ibarra particularly says, you kind of have to act your way into a new habit. And, and this is what we see with all the, 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 the behavioral economics applied to kind of working out. So, so it's, it's just one small thing a day, you know, act your yeah. way into a new way of thinking. Don't try and think yeah. your way. Let, let's not talk about fat cells and calories and this and that and the other thing and get into the whole theory of why you need to work out. Just change one thing small thing. And that's essentially what the book is. It, it, it's, um, there's, there's BJ Fogg from Stanford who talks about micro persuasion. It's like, at the end of the day, this book essentially argues the MERB is the status quo. It's not suited to the reality we're in today. We need to change a couple of paradigms about what leadership means. Um, and then we need to make it uh, le leading from the middle out rather than the top down and that everybody can lead in certain circumstances. In every company, somebody's following someone else at any point in time. Therefore, they're a leader. And then in order for us to move the whole culture forward, you don't take it on directly. You don't attack culture. You kind of nudge it. So everybody will nudge. This is, again, behavior economics, Rick Taylor and, and, and those folks, by, by making small shifts. So there's 10 people-centered transformation elements. And within each element, there are three shifts. Let me give you an example of a shift. Don't dictate change behavior. Starting tomorrow, you will clean up your room, which I said to my son this morning, and recognize, oh, you just broke your own rule. <laughs> and then I walk into my own room and I realize there's clothes all over the couch. Ah, demonstrate the change behavior you want. This is back to uh, Gandhi, right? Be the change you want to see. Uh, yeah. So demonstrate the change behavior. Uh, I, had a, I had a great mentor when I worked at Nortel many, many years ago. And this is just when I, when, when I had my first child. 
And if you want to talk about a transition point where everything just becomes foggy and you're super tired, right? It's it's becoming apparent. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and he used to talk a little bit like Yoda, and he said, "Tony, parents who have kids who read a lot don't read to them; they read a lot." And I'm going, "What is he talking about? Like, what is this? You know, what's the message in this parable?" But the message is leadership behavior speaks far more loudly than leadership speech. Yeah, so yeah, so yeah. if you don't change your behavior as a leader and you just say, from my position power, I'm going to say, you must do this, but I'm not going to do it. How on earth would you expect people to change? So again, micro shifts in the leadership system are the biggest lever to drive us to a culture, again, of aspiration. There has to be shared aspiration. Alignment around that aspiration that people find meaning in the aspiration. There's a shared aspiration. Autonomy, meaning now that you know what that is, I trust for you to do it because you're going to unlock your discretionary effort. And we're all accountable to get to that outcome, right? It works differently now. That system works differently. That then allows the organization to have far more kind of um, heads up sense of what's going on and when to move and when to pivot. Think about today. How, how information has to flow through the hierarchy and up to the hierarchy, up through the hierarchy to a whole bunch of certain levels of decisions for somebody to make a decision. Well, yeah. you know, Peter Drucker famously said, bottlenecks are at the top of the bottle. So as there's more and more and more and more and more and more and more information and uncertainty to deal with, and there's more and more and more and more hierarchy layers, then the whole system is not very efficient. Well, Roger Martin talks a lot about this, right? Choices and decisions. And so decisions need to be made uh, based on principles and purpose. That that actually makes it easier to make a decision. Uh, and then they need to be made closest to the edge of the organization, not in the middle. But that needs to be informed by purpose. That's a completely different decision-making model. And arguably in the military, don't get me wrong, there's a reason you need that hierarchical decision because there's, there's a button somewhere that somebody could push in. And this is a very salient conversation for what we're speaking about today and therefore you kind of need those control layers so to speak i'm not i'm not saying that's wrong i'm saying it's one operating system and a very important one in that particular context however in in, in a business context today when the world's so uncertain and you're trying to enter into a co-opetition kind of model you're trying to collaborate with organizations that have complementary capability to create new and different value on a technological substrate that's a very different world than the world of the Ford Model T motor company, you know. Yeah. And Tony, that's a really interesting sort of segue back into one of the the questions I I definitely wanted to ask you um, from when when I read the book. There was quite early on, there was a moment when I found myself laughing out loud a slightly knowing ever so sort of uh, maybe even (laughs) sinister laugh. And it was really where I think the the book was alluding to the fact that in many organisations, this is certainly something that I, I see, there's this constant demand for data, reports, update, analysis. As you said, being sucked up to the or pushed up to the to the top of that that bottle. And what that means, I think, is, and I got this quite clearly from, from the, the book, provided I've interpreted it right. What that means is I think the very people that have got the ability to execute get the job done, fix the problems, solve the issues that are facing the organization, don't have time to execute, solve the problems or fix the issues because all their time is being spent providing the reports and given given the updates. Mm -hmm. So I just wonder, like, how prevalent do you think that situation is and what would be your strongest recommendations for, for fixing it? But I guess, as I've just asked that question around the strongest recommendations to fix it, 
that's what the book is about, right? That's right. Uh, yeah, but, but it does. You're, you're focusing on PCT element four there, which is kind of focus attention on what matters. So a lot of people say information is the scarcest resource. I think that's incorrect. I think we're awash in information, devoid of direction and awash of information. Uh, this is, again, gets back to the notion of true north. There's going to be more data tomorrow than yesterday. And it's just exponential, right? So, so we have to move from data. If you think about data, it's just you know rows and columns of numbers. I teach people analytics class, so. Um, and then when you take that data and you you put it in formation, you put it in context. That's what information is. You're you're putting some kind of context around information, and then then the human thing happens. As a human being kind of looks at that information, let's say it's a balance sheet. A finance person might say, "Oh my gosh, you know, the cost of goods sold is way out of whack, or they're spending too much money on their resources." An artist might say, "Oh, those are pretty numbers. I like the I like the color that they use for the columns." You know, <laughs> we bring our uniquely human kind of uh, ability to to have inference to to infer from the information something, right? And that's an insight. I'll give you an example. Sully Sullenberger, who was the pilot of the U.S. Air Flight in the United States, right? He had a hobby that arguably saved 155 people on that that plane. And the the hobby, and then he also got it in the military, was was he was a glider pilot. He spent time as a glider pilot. So uh, as the plane takes off, he's not even flying the plane. He's the co-pilot. At that time, I've written a couple of cases about this. At that time, his biggest worry was, am I going to make the connection in Charlotte to get home to see my wife for dinner? That was his biggest worry. Right. That changed in about 27 seconds when they're 2,800 feet up and they get hit by geese, both engines. And suddenly he had a moment of clarity. This is what an insight is. An insight's kind of a moment of clarity that kind of reframes the situation. And he said to himself, I'm no longer a commercial airline pilot. I'm flying a glider with little itty bitty wings. And so his whole framing of the problem was was processed through that. How much lift am I gonna get? How long do I have? What speed yeah. do I need when I'm landing? Because he had that experience of non-powered flight, but he's trying to translate it into this particular context. You see what I'm saying? Now, the interesting thing on that story is his co-pilot was going through the standard operating procedure manual, right? By the time the plane landed in the water, he'd only gotten through the quarter of the first page. There was four pages in it. And the problem with the standard operating procedure was, you know, try the engines again. Like there was a whole just performance support. Try these things. Push buttons, pull levers, do this. He he was only a quarter of the way through the thing before the plane landed. And secondly, the SOP was written assuming that you'd be at 35,000 feet. The plane was at 2,800 feet when the birds hit, and it only got up to about 3,100 feet, you know, before it started heading back down. So so in that context, you you, kind of have to reframe. Right, you have to have that ability to reframe and then, and then kind of operate on a whole other set of principles. That's a very important thing, I think, for leaders today. Is to kind of a lot of us say we have to learn a lot of things. Sometimes we have to unlearn things. Yeah. You know what I mean? And yeah. and and, and it, if I go back to your experience, Ben, you're saying you know when I was kind of young and green behind the ears coming out of Sandhurst, I was more vulnerable in my leadership. I I, I had a position. But I didn't approach it that way because I knew I had a, a far more experienced people out here. And if you're on a battlefield, they can save your life. So that there's a shared aspiration right there. <laughs> right now, if you're very successful, I, I have the great fortune I'll be interviewing General Marty Dempsey next week for one of my classes, who's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff under President Obama. Right. If you've moved all the way through the hierarchy. Right. And you've had all of these experiences on the battlefield. Right. Uh, or now bring it over to the corporate context. Because the battlefield is a battlefield, and I think the, the MERB situation works. In, in the corporate world, the question is, does it continue to work when you're operating yeah. in an ecosystem? And in fact, I had a, a, a very interesting conversation with General Dempsey about this asymmetric warfare. 
can the hierarchy beat the network? This was back in Al-Qaeda time, right? So it's very hard. And even now we're seeing it, if you will, in the Ukraine conflict. The technology for the javelins or the, tech, you know, the, the, the man-portable technology can kind of take out a very heavy asset, like, you know, a tank or a plane. So the cost structure is it's, the war is asymmetric. In a way, that's what companies are dealing with today. The bigger you are, because you used to grow for scale and you build a bigger hierarchy, and the more efficient you could be, which is measure all the stuff that matters, back to what you were asking me, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Get me all the data. And in the book, I personalize that with the thing called the predominator. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. I, I, the predominator was like the, te- the prod, I'm prodding you, right? And productivity. So that's the idea of the predominator. And then the predominator would spit out the data. And the data would say, oh, they're not doing their work. So they get they get summoned up the elevator to get yelled at yeah. and told, do more next time. And then they go back down in the elevator and they're like, oh, we have to work harder. And you could just see the futility of that as, as it continues. Because yelling louder to do stuff more when the data is actually saying you're going in the negative direction is, is a bit of an exercise in futility. The other problem with it, though, is there's two issues there. And I'm sorry, but there's a lot underneath the book that, that, that underneath these these stories. If I'm busy shoveling data uphill, that's one thing. It's not taking me away from doing the real work of solving the customer's problem, which was your question. There's another even more pernicious problem. There's a lot of time when they you push the data up the elevator, metaphorically, like I do in the book, right? And you're waiting on a decision. So you're literally sitting there twiddling your thumbs and you're saying, I can do nothing until I get the order from on high. So there's two sources of inefficiency. Number one is you're gathering a whole bunch of data that you push upstairs and you're awaiting a response, Right. So that's taking you away from truly delivering value. And secondly, then you're in a holding pattern waiting until you get the order. So even though you you feel you could do something, you don't have permission to do it. And that's where give others agency. Give others agency is, is another one of the, the people-centered principles is people at the edge know better than people in the middle. People tend to think of organizations as a hierarchy if you look at it as an org chart. But if, if, if you kind of think about it, and that's there's a lot of metaphor in the book, but if you look at the company, it looks like a hierarchy. You know what I mean? It looks like a pyramid, so to speak. But then at the very end of the book, May and future May are on top looking down, and it looks like a whole set of concentric circles. You know what I mean? Yeah. It, did, I don't know if that came across in the book, but at the yeah, very it end... It did, yeah. It was one of the questions I was going to ask you, but I suspect we won't, suspect we won't get time to it, so you carry on. So so, so um, they're looking down, and, and the irony of that is, is it's the it's the people at the very edge of the enterprise. Again, it's like an amoeba, like a, like a biological metaphor. They have the biggest touch point with the external environment. Right. So if, if what you're trying to do is organization survival, they have the best headlights into how to respond. Right. But as it has to go through the subsequent layers to get into the middle of the organization, if you look at it from the top down, there's a lot of layers. Uh, I, I just, you, you can say going up and down the hierarchy, but it's it, in a weird way, the leaders are the most cocooned from the reality. Yeah, totally. If you think about it that way. Yeah. Right. And, and then so those at the edge push the information towards the middle. And then they're hoping to get a response. But by the time that's happened, the battlefield has changed or the business context has changed. So so they're they're executing, you know, on old models. Mm-hmm. I think there's a double danger with that cocooning as well. To your point earlier, you talked about people moving up the hierarchy of, of an organization into the senior positions. So not only because of that do they get cocoon from the reality of what's going on and maybe because they're in those senior positions people don't want to give them the the full truth and stuff gets sugar-coated problems aren't aren't raised etc etc but i think the the other problem for that which 
I don't know if kind of you have it over in the States, but in the, in the UK, um, there's a show called Undercover Boss. Yeah, I know it. I know that show. Yeah, like it's, it's really form, formulaic, but 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 I like it. I think what it often highlights is the CEO of the company often founded it and was doing all of the boots on the ground jobs to, to start with. And because of that, they think they still understand what it's like on the front line. But it's probably like there's one where there's a, like a food manufacturer and kind of these distributed foods, kind of men and women in vans driving all around the UK, dropping off food to kind of takeaway restaurants, et cetera, et cetera. And the guy at the top, because he did that job, he was the van driver. He thought he totally understood the challenges and therefore was setting KPIs around what he thought was acceptable, how quickly he could do it. But it was 15 years ago, maybe 20, he did that job. And like the roads have changed, the laws have changed, the orders are more complex, everything has changed. So I sort of think of it as the, the outdated expert. So you're cocooned and you're leading on really out of date out of date knowledge which is so dangerous i think you reminded me of another thing i did prior i had a corporate career as a strategist and also then in the learning side of the business so i i um for ibm i was in charge of kind of learning strategy performance that kind of stuff but then i also duke university has a executive education component called duke corporate education so i had i started the singapore office in asia for them we had a food and beverage client fast-moving consumer goods client um and we had a leadership program you know for the top 30 leaders in the company and and i i have to really commend this company i can't say who they are but you would totally know them and there's i guarantee their the, some of their products are in your fridge um where they literally took the top leaders out of the business for three months wow. and they were on the trucks delivering wow. they they went back into for three months 90 days your top leaders to reconnect with what the business was founded on does that make sense just because it's an fmcg business if the thing's not on the shelf you really need to understand that right you've got shareholders to keep happy and you've got all this other thing you got to worry about your brand and do we get this super girl commercial or that super girl? all of those questions however the, the the most senior leader felt that that group of leaders that leadership system if i may had kind of lost touch with the very essence of what the place was about. Bold move. Yeah, it was a very bold move. And, and I don't know how you measure success, but I would su- I would suggest that, you know, from a stock perspective and from an employee retention perspective, four years on, that company's doing well. Can I attribute that directly to this program? Absolutely not. But I would I would suggest that there were some serious epiphanies yeah. within that leadership system where they created new narratives for themselves about you know or, or, or rediscovered old narratives. I'm not exactly sure which one, but it doesn't matter. Hey everyone, excuse the interruption, but here is the hidden secret word if you want to win a copy of Everyday Superhero. The secret word is mojo meter. That's mojo meter. Simply pop that word in an email, send it to me via chat at ben-morton.com by the 28th of April 2022 and we'll enter your name into the prize draw. But let's get back to the episode. Tony, I'm conscious we don't have a lot of your your time left. But there's um, well, there's lots of questions I'd love to ask you. Let me let me hone in on one which you've spoken around a little bit, but I want to ask because it seems to be something that's getting a lot of sort of discussion in sort of leadership um, circles at the minute. So one of the shifts that I I particularly liked and picked up on in the book was um, this shift from projecting power to showing vulnerability like 
can you share a little bit more about this? Because for sure there will be, um, and I've come across these, some leaders who, when we start talking about that, will say, yeah, but Ben, why do I, why do I need to show any vulnerability? Why do I need to be, be vulnerable? Mm-hmm. Some will feel pretty uncomfortable doing that. And then there'll be others who just don't know what that, what that actually practically looks like. So can you shed some, some light on that for us? Sometimes what, what's, what's old becomes new again. Mary Parker Follett in 1924 wrote, and I quote, leadership is not defined by the exercise of power, but by the capacity to increase the sense of power mm. among those led. 1924, she wrote that, right? We might call that empowerment today, but I, I think, you know, you've got to decompose a, a, a word. So, so, so if you think about discretionary effort and then you think about leadership as a system and what's the, what's the kind of power source, it's discretionary effort. So it's this increasing the sense of power among the led. So the, the question that we ask for that particular PCT element, embracing situational humility, of course, it, it, it has Edmondson's work and, 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 and psychological safety and all of yeah. those things kind of fit into this particular piece. What I've tried to do is take a lot of the fantastic research from so many of my colleagues and kind of say, oh, that fits here and that fits here. But clearly the psychological safety literature fits in here. The question is, do our leaders show vulnerability, seek help, demonstrate that failure is acceptable and consistently seek to increase autonomy in return for accountability? there's five things in there <laughs> that are very, very hard to do. The first thing is showing vulnerability. And in the book, that's the first thing when May stands up to Chief yeah. Muck, that's the kind of yeah. Star Wars moment, you know, Luke versus, there's always these moments in the Joseph Campbell thing. He acquiesces and says, okay, go try it your way. The first thing she goes is back down in the elevator to the workers and says, I have a vision that we're going to get out of this mess. Yeah. I have no idea how we're going to do it. I know you do. Are you with me? That was that was the very first thing. And I think that that's that's it. So instead of projecting power, I mean, if you're projecting power, as Chief Muck was towards the end, just demanding more numbers and just demand and, and, and people are looking yeah. like you've lost your mind. You know, the data has been predicting all the time that we're just we're moonwalking. We're going backwards. So yelling louder. The analogy I have there is a, I was in France one time uh, and I was sitting in a nice cafe and there's a beautiful view of uh, Notre Dame just across the river there, this this rather exasperated American walks up to a French person and says, excuse me, do you know where Notre Dame is? And literally, I'm standing there, and, and yeah, yeah, yeah. if it was a snake, it would have bit him. You know, it's th- this huge church is towering behind this gentleman. Uh, and, and the French person, of course, blows him off. If you're not going to try and speak French to me, I'm not going to talk to you. So he yells louder. You're not going to get the outcome you're looking for here. It's the same kind of narrative. So then it's, you know, show vulnerability. I'm so sorry. Da, 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 let me try something. So showing vulnerability over projecting power, because there's nothing, there's nothing more vacuous than projecting power when there's nothing behind it. And if the people know that, then you've, you've lost followership, which is my definition of leadership. Then the other thing is asking open questions over demanding definitive answers. I need an answer for our fail-proof plan. Like we needed a 90-day fail-proof plan, and then everything went went astray. So now I need a 60-day fail-proof plan, and I need it on my desk tomorrow morning. If it didn't work on 90 days, how's it going? It just doesn't stand to logic, you see. And then the the most important one, which goes back to the psychological safety research, is make failure safe instead of just playing it safe. Yeah. So so those three shifts. That that that's an example of how one element works. The element is embracing situational humility situational is an important part here. You don't want a leader on a battlefield when you're trying to take the hill to say, oh, what do you think we should do? Or you don't want a surgeon if somebody is, you know, in the middle of a heart attack kind of saying, well, 
Anyone have any ideas? You want somebody to take the lead. I'm not suggesting that, but I'm saying that's the status quo. But there are times when if you really don't know what you need, that you must show that humility. I, I really want to be careful here. I'm not suggesting you're throwing all this stuff out. I'm suggesting that is the status quo. But sometimes you need to stretch away from the status quo. In this case, embracing situational humility, if you're in a situation where you legitimately do not know and you try to project power, it, that's the beginning of the end because there's no there's no there there behind it. And, and then that'll quickly be discovered. Yeah. But I think you absolutely, when you are planning to take the hill to carry on the the analogy then you absolutely in many occasions would want a leader who goes to the to the troops and says hey guys kind of between you three my my corporals my section commanders you've got 30 years experience in the british army to my nine months right what, what, what do you think and then as a leader you kind of take the best plan, give credit where credit's due and get on and execute that that mission. And when the shit start, starts hitting the fan when you're on the hill, kind of the leader is kind of calling the shots and executing the plan. But you, you bring people into the, to the planning, which I guess brings us nicely full circle to where we started this conversation and about the vision, what you're trying to achieve and, and engagement, right? That's right. That's right. Yeah. Being a professor at business school, you know, I put it in this one sentence, meaning's the new money. In other words, today, it's really true. You know, there, there are generational differences. And, and so when I was coming through, it was kind of like, well, what job gets you the most money? And do I have the scores of the grades to get into that? And then I'll do that. No question about whatever. I, in fact, you know, in my own career, I did have an opportunity as a lecture engineer to, to do something in defense. I said, I'm not sure if I want to do that. I'd rather do something else. But now, the students I have the privilege of kind of working with every day, they keep me young. Um, they really, they really want to know what the purpose of the firm is. Yeah. They really want to know, you know, what are you doing? It, it goes back to Paul Pullman, who I think again is, is one of these leaders who kind of um, has been fantastic in what he's done at Unilever. He asked the question in his new book, is the world better off because your company is in it? And if yes, then articulate why, because if you can do that, you will attract the talent. And, and, and so that's the flywheel, yeah. you know, pr- pr- purpose over profit kind of thing. Tony, I've asked less than half of the questions I plan, plan, plan to ask. It's been an amazing <laughs> conversation. Um, before we wrap up, like, let me give you the opportunity to, to talk about the book one final time. Like when, when does it come out? How can people find out more now? And kind of then how can they get, get hold of a copy? Because I, I highly recommend it, listeners. It's a, it's a great, great book. Well, Ben, I appreciate that. And, and, and honestly, you know, it's probably an ironic situation where you got to see the thing before I did, but I've been living with it for a while. But you know how it is. You want to see the final product. Um, my, my real hope is here that I, I try to keep things as simple as possible, but that it's, you know, everything that's in here is kind of rooted in research. Um, the book's called Everyday Superhero. The idea here is that everyone is followed by someone. And, and so how do we become an everyday superhero? That's by making these small shifts that can nudge the organization forward. An organization can be a family, can be an NGO. You know, it's not it's not specific. This story is about a company, um, but it's about a company that's trying to deal with a, a global situation. So it, I, it, the book comes out on the 31st in Europe. 31st of March. Of March. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, just eight days away now, you know, available everywhere. Amazon, Goodreads, so on and so forth. And I really hope that uh, people see value in it and that the story helps bring bring it forth, which I love the what you said about, you know, scribbling notes all over. We want to leave a lot of white space, you know, so that folks could yeah, kind of I'm do I'm a big that, book so. scribbler, so that um, was uh, much appreciated by me. Great. Great. 
And I really appreciate you uh, being willing to have a conversation with me, Ben. I, I've looked at a number of your podcasts. Yeah, it's been an amazing conversation. Thank you so much for for sharing your, your time, your knowledge and, and expertise. It's been an absolutely fascinating conversation. So uh, thank you and best of luck with the book. Thank you. Really appreciate it. There you have it, folks. My interview, my conversation with Professor Tony O'Driscoll. I hope you got massive value from it. But as always, I really hope you're able to take away some of the tips, insight and wisdom that Tony shared with us and use it very quickly and very practically to help you become an even better leader. If you are enjoying the show and getting value from it, please can I ask you a small favour? Please take just a couple of minutes to rate, review and subscribe on whichever platform you listen to the show on, as it really does help us to keep bringing you more and more episodes. And do also remember to check out my 10 for 10 leadership program via the link in the show notes. It's completely free of charge and consists of one short email once a week over a 10 week period where I share a written tip idea or leadership suggestion for you on some of the most common topics I get asked about. There is a short video challenge for you. There's a relevant book recommendation and there's a specially curated podcast episode that links directly to the content of that week's email. As I say, check it out via the link in the show notes. I know you'll get massive value from it. And that is it for this episode, folks. Thanks very much for tuning in. Look after yourselves, take care and lead on.